0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Faith in politics as always your hosts are Bethan and Will and it's a pleasure to have you with us today. So for this episode, we're going to have a conversation that took place between Will and Jonathan Aitken, who is a rather famous politician who was first elected in 1974, but was a member of the Cabinet under John Major in the 1990s and got himself into a little bit of trouble with the law, to put it lightly, and ended up in prison for 18 months. During his time in prison, Jonathan Aitken converted to Christianity um, and that led him on a path to ministry and he is now an ordained minister in the Church of England. He also works a lot in prison ministry and is a very active political uh, thinker and speaker we really hope you enjoy the conversation and after it will and i are going to have a little chat about what we thought about what jonathan had to say
1: jonathan thank you so much for for being with us today on faith in politics it's a real uh, pleasure to to have you with us i wondered um, if you could start by taking us back to the Old Bailey in 1999, if you could uh, take us into the dock with you and and talk about uh, how you were feeling at that time.
2: Well, in many ways, it was the worst day of my life, but there were surprisingly positive moments about it. And there was a note of comedy right at the beginning when I was arrived early at the Old Bailey, which defendants are to- advised to do, uh, and a kindly court warder uh, took me into court number one of the Old Bailey, which is a famous historic court. And he was obviously a kindly man who had been racking his brains to try and think of something pleasant to say to me on what was for me a very unpleasant occasion. And he said, to do this, he turned himself a touchy-feely tourist guide, and he said, uh, morning, Mr Ekin, Welcome to the Old Bailey. Do you realise you're in the most famous court in the world? Anyway, I eventually was in that dog, not for very long, because I had already pleaded guilty. I was expecting to receive a prison sentence. And the judge said, words to the effect, the uh, last thing, you will serve 18 months' imprisonment, take him down. And I then had just a chance to blow a kiss to my four teenage children and my 89-year-old mother sitting a few feet away from me in the well of the court. And then I headed down, down, down into the subterranean depths of the Bailey where pretty quickly I was put in handcuffs and led out on a chain to a prison van which set off for Her Majesty's Prison, Belmarsh, in South London. Mm. Amidst the noise in prison,
1: um, faith suddenly um, became a much more important part of your life. And, And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Uh, where God was in your life before prison and where God was during during your time in in prison and and whether there's a moment that you can pinpoint or whether it was a more gradual process.
2: Mm. Well, before I got into trouble, um, I think I was at best a sort of half-Christian. I now think that's about as useful as being half-pregnant, but at the time I thought it was quite all right to sort of go to church occasionally, pay lip service to Christ's teachings, but not really to bother to observe them once I got out of church. And of course um, that was all wrong, uh, but I didn't think it was all wrong. Uh, And um, if I had ever been asked, which occasionally... um, Politicians do get asked uh, at election time. They would ask, are you a Christian? Or I'd have thought secretly, what a cheesy question that is. Um, and they might then have gone on, as sometimes they do, when religious groups come to see you, um, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And I'd have thought, even worse, this is an even worse question. But if I thought about it, I think I had a, did have a sort of relationship. Um, it was not wholly useless. Um, for example, rather like my bank manager in the country time where I used to grow up, when bank managers were real people, sort of people, call centres in Bangladesh, I, um, for a start, knew that the bank manager stroke God existed. Step in the right direction. I used to think he was important enough to be visited in his premises every so often just to be respectful. Another step in the right direction. Um, but I think all this time I used to think, um, Maybe he could be useful to me one day if he could provide a little uh, credit uh, if I overspent on the spiritual or moral credit card. Um, And but above all, I thought, um, you know, this was all about me. And all the time, I also thought that I was really in charge of the account. And it wasn't really till I started to rethink my whole life in the aftermath of a pretty dramatic crash I sometimes say I went through defeat disgrace divorce bankruptcy and jail it's a pretty good royal flush for crises by anybody's standards but it does of course if you're sensible and sensitive which I hope I was you do get to a point where you want to start really to ask yourself some quite searching questions mm-hmm. where did I really go wrong where did I lose my moral and spiritual moorings um why did I neglect uh, the teachings that I'd taken in and believed in uh, as a uh, adolescent and young man? And that was a useful process, uh, quite a, a searing process, and I suppose you'd call it the process of repentance. But I can't really point to a dramatic moment on the road to Damascus when there was a blinding flash of light and Hallelujah, from that moment onwards, I was a Christian. With me, it was much more of a bumpy ride of a journey, stumbling, falling, sinning, backsliding, doubting, saying, am I becoming a sort of religious lunatic just because I'm in trouble, mm-hmm. foxhole conversion? All these kind of thoughts went through my mind. But in the end, The momentum of being attracted to Jesus Christ was a journey which kept on going. And um, I certainly felt I had made a commitment to a new life in Christ.
1: I wonder how the change in relationship you experienced with God in those months leading up to your time in prison affected the way that you related to your fellow prisoners.
2: Well, I'm sure it did help a lot. Um, But again, it was a slightly stumbling journey rather than anything very sudden and dramatic. Um, I think one thing I had um, learned before getting into prison uh, was that it was about time in my life for a bit of humility. And some people who've been vaguely important before they get into prison, give themselves airs and graces once they're in prison and go on pretending they're somebody important that was not a mistake I made I knew from day one that all men are equal in a prison uniform and probably the worst thing I could do was to sort of pretend I was somehow significant anymore um, so I settled in quite peacefully and I hope quite humbly and then I had a bit of luck um, about uh, Two or three days into my prison sentence um, a young fellow prisoner approached me in a sort of conspiratorial whisper and said look i've got a problem could you help me i've just had a letter from my brief my problem is i can't read it could you read it for me so i read it and the letter basically said you're going to be evicted from your council flat in south london and so your wife and your child because you haven't paid the rent And this guy went up the wall with sort of anguish, shouting, screaming, and the prevalent cry was, what shall I do? What shall I do? Uh, As it happened, considering we were both in Belmarsh prison, he couldn't have come to a greater source of expert knowledge on the subject because for the previous 24 years as a backbench MP, I'd been doing eviction cases. So of course I knew all the ropes, how to sort of, put in an appeal letter, get more time. So I suggested that an appeal along these lines might work, get him some more time. And then his face fell and he said, hey, I've got another problem. I don't do no reading nor no writing neither. Could you write it for me? So I said, sure. So I wrote a letter which he was kind enough to say was he thought, rather a good letter of appeal with all the, saying all the right things. And suggesting if he could get a friend or a relative to pay off some of the rent arrears by installments and that would automatically give him more time but then when it was over and he would signed the letter and he would thanked me instead of doing the usual thing put it in the post box or put it in his pocket instead he did something completely unusual which was that he uh, held the letter aloft and went off down the wing shouting at the top of his voice hey guys this MP geezer of ours He's got fantastic joined-up writing. <laughs> now, this um, testimonial to my graphological skills fell on the ears of a surprisingly receptive audience because in prison there are an awful lot of people, maybe as much as a quarter to a third, who don't have adequate reading or writing skills. Mm-hmm. So thanks to the adver- advertisement by the town crier, from that moment on, was every night of my son's accused form outside my cell door of people wanting letters read to them or Written to them often on the most intimate subjects imaginable and that was Of course good for me because I got to know my fellow prisoners It was good for me because I became a sort of an accepted member of the community Mm. Not that sort of tough from outer space But no, he's a decent guy who helped me with my letter to my girlfriend or whatever it might be Mm. and um, So that sort of got me into the community. And um, in a way, I didn't find the surprising thing to do at all. I mean, after all, most of my life had been spent, however, imperfectly uh, honouring the ideal of public service. So to be doing a small public service inside the prison, I think, uh, helped me and felt natural for me.
1: That really resonates with me in, in the sense that, As Christians, we're called to to help and to serve people in in whatever context we find ourselves. You chose to go back into prison in in the context of prison ministry. And I wonder, what was it that pulled you back in in that way?
2: Well, what really happened was this. My prison journey was also a spiritual journey. Um, I found, as monks have done down the centuries, that cells can be great places to pray in to meditate about God in, to read the Bible in. And because there's so much time, that was in itself a strength. Uh, Then also I got myself into, by chance, into a prayer group of um, fellow Christians or searchers. And that was very important in my journey. And thirdly, as I thought to myself in prison, well, what am I gonna do when I come out? And I really didn't know. But one of the things I thought, I actually want to learn more about God. So I then had a most unusual, unexpected career change. I went to the one place in Britain which had worse food, worse plumbing, and more uncomfortable beds than the prison. And this was an Anglican theological (laughs) college of some distinction called Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. And there I spent two wonderful years studying theology, immersing myself in the Uh, both academic and pastoral study of God every other student in that college at that time was going to be a vicar of some kind I wasn't, I didn't think that was for me I didn't think I was worthy of it Um, but um, it was a very good community to be part of Um, but that came almost immediately after I came out of prison and after leaving Wycliffe and uh, passing all the exams and so on I then really went back into fairly ordinary life. I didn't go off to being a, a vicar. I just didn't think I was really good enough or worthy enough for that. Uh, I did do quite a lot of prison ministry as a layman. I did a certain amount of, um, I hope, good work in church and in charities and uh, my living, a little bit of business, but more sort of writing books and so on. And I really didn't intend to Become an ordained minister. Um, while I was at Wickliffe, people used to say, Well, why don't you join our club? You know, you've done all the work, you've been praying with us in the chapel, you've been studying with us. And my call at that moment wasn't powerful enough. So for 15 years, long time, I uh, did Christian work, but not sort of really thinking of the ordained ministry. And then something rather strange happened. I started to feel mysteriously in my prayer life, which had strengthened, and gone quite deep, uh, that somehow a voice seemed to be saying, I would like you to be ordained. And I'm sort of more or less said, I hope politely, if that's you speaking God, please be quiet. <laughs> please don't say this. I mean, I'm too old, I'm not right for it, I'm not worthy of it. And all. But it was sort of persistent and mysterious. And then it became clear that what this sort of murmuring was really saying is actually, I want you to be a prison chaplain. And then I thought, well, that's something I might be some use in. I could do that. Uh, and um, If that's what I'm being called to do, well, let's try and ask other people. And I went on quite uh, an exhaustive journey of discernment, being interviewed by various people. And then I was ordained uh, approximately ten months ago. There's that old saying, isn't there, that
1: that when God calls us, he also equips us. And I have no doubt that your time in in prison will have uh, made you a, a better minister in in prisons than you would have been
2: otherwise. I'm sure that is true I mean um, the life of a prison chaplain is um, the sharp end of pastoral ministry. You're dealing with some rough people in rough circumstances people who are mentally troubled, people who are self-harming, threatening suicide behaving badly and they don't always give prison chaplains an easy ride I mean I'm quite used to sort of going down the wing and somebody shouting something rather rude like up yours pie i should translate that uh, up yours and everyone can translate but pie means vicar because pie and liquor equals vicar and that's what i mean slang so anyway they're saying something rude to the vicar um but i have a comeback which is rather useful i say hey hang on a minute i used to be a prisoner Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh really? Where we where were you? <laughs> so Belmarsh or and uh, Stanford Hill and Elmlet and they oh wow They and take a, a step co- back at that. conversation then starts and often the prayer starts. And um, prison ministry is specialised, it is difficult, um but it's wonderfully rewarding.
1: In your experience of, of going into prisons, do you feel like government policy, I suppose in in that area, but, but we can talk about this in more broad terms too, whether the experiences of people who have been in those situations is sufficiently well taken into account?
2: Well, I think the Ministry of Justice probably tries to listen, but we have to say that our prison policy and our rehabilitation policy is not a success story. Our jails are quite dangerous places in terms of attacks and assaults and drug use. Um, our reoffending rates are still alarmingly high. Seven out of every ten prisoners are usually reconvicted within two years and back in jail. So this isn't working well. Um, could it work better? Uh, yes, uh, there have been some quite enlightened efforts. I and it's worth saying that. Uh, two or three years ago the prisons really were much more dangerous uh, there were a frightening number of assaults there's still too many a frightening number of disturbances at least we recruited found the money to and recruited a lot more new prison officers so the situation inside the jails is improving outside the jails our rehabilitation policy is a failure there was a great initiative Called transforming rehabilitation, setting up community rehabilitation companies, and that has really folded and collapsed. Um, And so government policy on rehabilitation ain't working. My view, and I've told this to the Secretary of State to his face, is that I don't think government will ever do rehabilitation well. The probation service is full of good people, But I think they're at their best, not on the sort of ground in rehabilitation ordinary minor criminals. They're at their best sort of dealing with very difficult cases like lifers who are released and so on. Uh, But if you did rather what another government department, DFID, the Department of International Aid and Development, does, which is instead of trying to do it themselves, they fund certain charities and agencies which do it well. And I'd say that the Minister of Justice should stop trying to do rehabilitation itself on the grounds the gentleman in Whitehall knows best. Usually he doesn't. Uh, But charities sometimes do know best. So being a funder of charities, including church charities, which do rehabilitation well, would be a much better policy. And then I think you could get into all kinds of rather clever schemes that you would provide matching funding for a charity which was succeeding and raising money and so on. So I think we need some rethinking, creative rethinking on the whole area, particularly of rehabilitation ministry. And I'm involved in this to a certain extent. I think uh, the church in its broadest sense, or church is plural, I've actually failed quite badly in the world of reaching out to both those who have suffered from crime and those who have committed crimes and come out of prison. Rehabilitation is on the whole not really high on the agenda of most churches. Um, and yet there's quite a lot more we could quietly do. Um, I'm not expecting every church to immediately put out a banner saying come in ex-convicts and yet that's what we should do subject to all the usual qualifications about safeguarding I mean uh, Jesus reached out to everybody including the lowest of the low and I think churches aren't as energetic in that front and if one doubts this uh, just ask your local church Do you have a prison ministry or a rehabilitation ministry at all? Do you even pray for prisons, prison officers regularly? Uh, Have you ever thought of um, trying to welcome an ex-offender into the congregation? And the answers are not that good. There are some churches do a lot. Well, I think one of the things in the age of the um, uh, mobile phone and Facebook and so on, is that we seem to have less of the human touch and too much of the kind of technological touch. And I think churches are places where still the human touch can really work. You can welcome people in, um, make them feel as though they're part of the community, find them something to do which is useful. Um, And uh, I know some very good churches in this field and the churches where I'm curate is doing some good things in this area, but not enough churches are keen to or are interested in it and yet um, Jesus' own teachings on this subject are so, so clear. One of the uh, phenomenons in in British politics over
1: the last few decades has been the increasing decline in, in trust in our public institutions and I know how contrite you've been about um, the mistakes you made. What I wonder is the extent to which the conduct of politicians who have been less willing to apologise or, or less willing to be accountable for what they've done, the extent to which you feel that that has contributed to that decline in in respect for parliament as an institution and, and for politics as a, as a system.
2: I incline towards the view that. Parliament is fairly representative of the general population. There are uh, some sort of saloon-bar idiots. Uh, There are some clever people. There are some people of great honour and integrity. There are also people who let the side down, as I did. There are people who cheat on their expenses in Parliament, as there are in the outside world. Uh, But they are fairly representative. And I I think they've... uh, in the engines of publicity have highlighted the failings of politicians and rightly so because if you're in a position of trust and you violate that trust um, the media and the public are right to come down harder on you. I think the failings of parliament go a bit deeper than just a few and they still are, contrary to few people who transgress the rules or the laws and various ways. In my view, the big change in parliamentary life is that when I was elected to Parliament in the very early 70s, Parliament was still full of people who had done a lot of things with their lives before coming into Parliament. There must have been something like 60 or 70 people still in that Parliament who had fought with some distinction in World War Two. Like Dennis Healy, who'd been a beachmaster at Anzio, there were Ted Heath, who'd been, there were a couple of VCs tucked away on the back benches. There were lots of people who'd been successful businessmen, lawyers in their profession, and then gone into Parliament. Um, we then, as a nation, got rather excited about something called um, members' interests, and there was a register of members' interests, and the views started to be shaped that members shouldn't have any outside interests at all and they rather dried up. Uh, As a result, a lot of those very good people who had still got family businesses or still were practicing lawyers or whatever it was, they drifted away. Instead, you've got a sort of professional class of politicians who've done nothing in their lives except be researchers, advisors, consultants, uh, then they've become a top aide to a minister and they haven't done anything else. And I think that's where the weakness in today's system really springs from. I would have been, post-prison, a much better politician. First of all, uh, there were a lot of people who I got to know in and around prison who I probably wouldn't have given the time of day to. Um, I mean, I it was not the kind of Tory MP, I hope, who would ever have said, lock him up and throw away the key. But still, um, I think I had uh, as many respectable people tend to, as a tendency to look down on those who had failed, gone to prison. Uh, I I haven't gone soft on crime just because I've been to prison, but I now have much better understanding of the causes of crime. When I was writing those letters in prison, I always used to ask people what their life story was. And I was astonished a high percentage of people who had spent most of their childhood and adolescence in care and practically nobody had ever said to them you know, son I love you or well done and so it's not surprising that they felt that, uh, alienated from a lot of society and its moral rules because they simply hadn't been brought up in a loving or caring way so i think my own horizons were hugely broadened by going into prison i hope that my attitudes um would have uh, changed um become more compassionate more understanding um, i understand the underdog much better uh so um yes I, I think it's an improvement of course prison is good for politicians i wonder how you would encourage our listeners to make a
1: difference in their own context whatever that might be how can how can they channel their faith in a way that makes a very positive contribution?
2: Well first of all public service is a great vocation um, and a great calling so to anybody who's thinking of becoming an elected council or an elected MV, I'd hugely encourage Christians to go down that road. I think churches, should first of all pray for, for those who are in government service or parliamentary service. Secondly, they should get into the arena and participate. Uh, go uh, to public meetings, go to MP surgeries, participate. I mean, this is wonderfully democratic country still with endless opportunities to make your voice heard.
1: Thank you so much for okay. joining us today. We've been really blessed by, by your time and your insights. Well Bethan, I really enjoyed the chance to sit down with, with Jonathan and to hear about his, his life and, and his journey through prison and, and I was really struck by uh, a man who, whose life was transformed in a, in a very difficult situation I wonder what you took from the interview what did you uh, enjoy, what did you uh, disagree with what did you... Uh, what, what really... Um, got you going when you were hearing what Jonathan had to say.
0: I thought it was a, I thought it was a really interesting interview because in thirty minutes we managed to sort of go through decades of this man's life, which was quite a difficult thing to do in a short interview. Um, I think for me, two of the things that stuck out were firstly the fact that this relatively short time in prison, a year, um, and undoubtedly a very stressful and unpleasant time. Um, was the was the turning point in regards to how this man lived his life um, in a in many many ways um, predominantly his faith but also in just the way he understood and interacted with the realities of people who live in this country mm. and we often don't like to think about the fact that offenders are you know a part of our a part of our country and a part of our communities and that it it's wrong it's it's easy to forget about them but it's not a good thing to forget about them um, I just think it's really interesting to hear about how he he used the unpleasantness as a motivation to move on and a motivation to shape something new and that's quite a profound because most people would, I imagine, get out and attempt to move on as if nothing's happened whereas he got out and then went back in again as mm-hmm. a as a prison preacher yeah um, I,
1: I thought it would be very easy to, to have that experience in a, in a very intense and and quite short period of time and yeah. then to have an interesting story to tell at dinner parties and to go back to the life that he lived before but there's something I guess about when God works in our lives mm. how can we ever be the same again our, our lives are, are changed yeah. and so how do we respond to that calling and it's by changing the way that we live, changing the way that we relate to people.
0: Mm. And I think the thing that struck me the most from the interview was just how much his interactions with other prisoners um, shaped the way he viewed people in general and also those who were the most vulnerable and disadvantaged, specifically what he said about how so many of the people he met were in the care system and were in um, incredibly vulnerable situations. Well it's a
1: heartbreaking thing isn't it when you think about what Jonathan was saying about so many of the people that he was alongside in prison, mm-hmm. that they'd never known that the security that comes with a loving relationship, that these were, were men who had never often been told that they were loved mm-hmm. and, and known that known what it is to be in a, in a truly intimate and meaningful relationship. And, mm-hmm. and I was struck by what Jonathan was saying about the role that the church has to provide a human touch in a world where increasingly we're relying on technology and, and relationships that are virtual mm. I I think that as churches we are in such a good place to reach out and um, be amongst people but also to facilitate the kinds of conversations in our churches that are, are honest and, and direct and, and that lead us into closer relationships with one another, and, and into closer relationships with God too, as we consider the big issues of life, as we as we journey together in faith, but also as we um, get alongside each other in the much more small and, and mundane things that that we grow in into deeper relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a valuable role that the church can play.
0: As you say, the church has a really important role to play in in being. A family, not only a family in Christ but a family in in the way we treat one another.
1: Absolutely, in, in very practical ways because as we do that we're pointing people towards a God who lavishes us with love
0: and and to point people towards a love that is not even comparable to the way that we love and it's so much bigger and so much more undescribable in its meaningfulness um,
1: yeah We've been talking about how relationships matter and that a varied and 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 that a varied life experience will bring us into contact with Mm. people who are not necessarily like us people that we can uh, teach but also learn from and and that we can speak to but but to whom we can also listen and beth you you were interested i i know about what jonathan was saying about the kind of people who represent us in parliament
0: yeah i think the two things regarding that that um I found really interesting is firstly how he said, um he thinks prison was good for politicians, <laughs> and obviously he meant that in a very personal way. He doesn't mean that every politician should go to prison, but um I think what he meant is that it showed him the reality of the brutality of what it's like for many people um living in in poverty and in vulnerability so in regards to like how his experience shaped him as a man and how he thinks that if you experience... If you put yourself in the situation where you can experience and understand and attempt to understand the complex lives of the people who make up your constituents if you're an MP, then it's going to make you a better policymaker. Um, And I completely agree with that. But something I don't necessarily agree with him on is about his comments on career politicians and how he said that he thinks politics used to be better when people had varied and often long-term careers before going into public service. And I don't know how, where, don't really know where I stand on you this. You
1: want to stick up for, for the young people who decide th- politics is for me.
0: Yeah, I do. And I think there's a balance. Um, I think that if every policymaker can only be a middle-aged person who's had a career beforehand, then you're significantly limiting the voices of the young and the marginalised and the vulnerable um, because by the time you're an established business person or or have had a career, your experience of your youth is is decades ago. Um, so how do you you know how do you legislate for young people if it was that long ago and the world's moved on, especially at the speed of which our society is adapting in regards to technology? Career politics across the whole of parliament is not a good thing. I think mm-hmm. that's pretty easy to say because it distances people from the realities of society Mm. however young people who want to dedicate a part of their life to serving people and to serving as an mp or serving as a public servant in whatever form that takes it it would be wrong to say to someone who's who's up for election to say oh you're too young and you need a career first
1: i think i broadly agree i think that our politics benefits from people who are young and and who decide i have a real conviction that i can make a positive difference and a positive contribution and and who step up and serve uh, at a young age and and bring the enthusiasm and and the the freshness that that comes with but i think like you say that that our politics also benefits from people who have gone away and, and got some experience of, of the outside world as it were and, and who come back and can bring those experiences from their other professions, from from their other walks of life and, and the relationships they form, that they can bring that to bear in our politics too at an institutional level. I think I'm struck, Bethan, that as we um, approach the end of our time in Parliament and and may not be there beyond August. The the thing that's really struck me is that even after just a relatively short space of time there, that it it, it will be a difficult place to leave because you get sucked into a, to a place where yeah. change happens and and where things are uh, you know often mundane but often quite exciting too. And so, I think that I I have an awareness more. Of, I think I have more of an awareness than I did before of the dangers of being sucked into a to a place. And yeah, there's so, definitely
0: a people talk about the london bubble but there's definitely a westminster bubble
1: and that's where we have the question of whether our mps are out of touch and and actually we talk about privilege and we talk about um the the positions that our mps occupy and and the the bubbles that our, our mps are in but actually mps aren't necessarily out of touch on that basis it's about the effort that they make to Um, reach out and when they go back to their constituencies how how far are they engaging Mm. how far are they listening how far are they taking the voices that are that are speaking to them often telling them different things but how as an MP do you channel that and and use it in a way that um, represents your constituents well
0: but also how do you reach out to the people who aren't writing to you Mm. I think that there's something I've been thinking about a lot recently is the fact that it's this particular type of person who's going to attempt to contact their MP. They're going to be at least a little bit politically engaged. They're going to be aware that that matters and that that can make a difference. I would say that's only a small proportion of, people, of MPs' constituencies. So how do you, as an MP who's, who's been elected to represent people, reach out to the people who wouldn't normally come to you? And um, I think specifically for me, I think specifically children, I think that's a really big thing is that children see their and, and school children of um, secondary school age specifically feel that they can be listened to because from an, um, from a democratic perspective, they can't be. They're not old enough. Um, and if you want to make us make a generation of civically minded politically aware people, you have to start with young people um, and you have to move out of the bubbles of people who are writing to you and move into situations that maybe make you feel really uncomfortable Mm. Um, and I don't know if MPs are doing that
1: Mm. I think what Jonathan said about being able to understand the underdog on the basis of his experiences Mm -hmm. resonated with me enormously and I think that as Christians who are engaged in politics whether we're uh representing people in an institution or whether we're we're just on our own or as part of an organization trying to work out what our faith encourages us to do what it calls us to do what it compels us to do mm. that we have um a wonderful opportunity to listen and and to notice where god is working through difficulty and through change and through our experiences and I, I think I'm, I'm very grateful to Jonathan for reminding us of that during our interview.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He was really. I love the fact that he took the unpleasantness of it and made it into something positive, and he didn't just walk out of prison and think, oh, that's a part of my life that's done with now.
1: we've just been talking about how we communicate our faith and so this is a really good moment to have a monthly musing from Trey Hall. Trey is the Director of Evangelism and Growth at the Methodist Church.
3: When I was a young minister, um, my bishop, I'm a United Methodist, so we have bishops who send us places to serve, and so I was sent to a church on the north side of Chicago. And my job was with them to discern whether they would uh, shut their doors in a few years or find a new mission in the future. And that was our job together. It was a it was an amazing time, and part of our discernment um, was joining a neighborhood organization of other churches, other. Um, houses of religion, mosques and synagogues, secular partners, other organizations that were seeking the collective uh, common good of the community. And, and part of that neighborhood organization was a chance for me to go on a five-day community organizing uh, leadership academy or leadership institute. It was amazing. Community organizing, just quickly, is is uh, a set of practices and understandings about how power works in a community. And it, it, it believes that uh, real social change happens when um, different individuals and in different groups in a community share their stories, find common values, a common passion, and and build power uh, among themselves, with themselves, to engage the the powers that be, uh, elected officials, the legislature, etc. Um, so for more on community organizing, you can go to Citizens UK and read all about it. But I was there at this at this training, this five-day training, and um, I remember the trainer, a, guy, a Catholic guy called Mike Geekin, who was uh, talking about, there were lots of young, young clergy there, young ministers from lots of different denominations, and he was talking about how in so many denominations and so many churches and organizations, the young folks come in with so much passion and so much hope and so much will for change, and he sees over and over again how uh, within a couple of years they are totally burned out. The institution has placed, quote, bureaucratic demands on them that they that, that drains their energy. And so the, the, the work of this um, five-day kind of reflection, this community organizing training, was to be able to look at the organizations we were part of, in my case, the Methodist Church and the Holy Covenant Methodist Church that I was serving, and to identify, you know, where are we being run or or where are we kind of um, uh, being um, fueled by kind of institutional bureaucratic demands? And some of those are really important. But, but where and where are we being freed and, and fueled and empowered by relationships, by people? So one of the things we kept coming back to in that training was how can we be an organization that's more about people than it is about paper? How can we be an organization that's more about people than it is about process? That's not to say paper and process and rules aren't important, but that the main thing is about people and, and our flourishing and communities flourishing um, in, in every way of being human in terms of individual flourishing and social flourishing. The, the, whole, uh, the whole human being at full stretch, as one of my professors used to say. And so a key piece for social change and church change that we learned about was how uh, we are meant to seek out and build uh, relationships. Now, that sounds like a very obvious thing, but it's actually a practice that lots of churches don't actually engage. How do we build relationships with each other that are um, that are at trade on deep story, deep uh Uh, values, uh, our reason for being, and how do we uh, engage relationships with friends, neighbors, strangers in the community who may have different stories? How do we get to know those well? And so when we're thinking, as I do as director of evangelism and growth, as we think about churches trying to change in order to be more faithful, relevant, compelling in the 21st century, and as we think also about social change, social justice, um, changing the uh, the systems of our uh, common life together. And I believe both of those are uh, parts of Christian discipleship. You can't have one without the other. Social change and church change, to my mind, go together. Um, a practice in both of those is this deep, deep um, uh, formation of relationships. So one story um, is about churches one example is about churches if you want to figure out what your life is in the future if if your church if your congregation has a future beyond just sort of staying open for worship once a week uh, a, a key practice to do is to go out and build relationships with folks in the community to ask deep questions to figure out why did the folks and the shop across the street do what they do, to talk to the head of school, to talk to all these different community partners. And I don't mean that just in a general way, but to actually go out and sit down for coffee with, with these leaders and to talk and to share and to listen to them, but also to share deeply of yourselves. And that when you start to do that over and over and over again, not just as a one-time campaign, not just for the season of Lent, no, that's fine to start there, but... Um, that, that all those relationships begin to influence the decisions you make uh, for your mission. So why would you even think about writing your mission policy or your mission statement or your five-year kind of future hope for your church if you hadn't had those kinds of conversations? So that's the first thing. Uh, it helps. This relationality helps the church understand what it's for, what it's about. Um, and I could tell you loads and loads of stories. And if we had if we had a fifteen-minute podca- podcast, I would. But the second thing is. That same um, practice uh, or skill, and it's it's both a, it's a it is a skill, but it's also an art of 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 relation of relationally engaging. It, that same practice is the one I think we bring to the most effective social change when it comes to being in con in contact with our elected officials. So um, I think JPIT has a meet your MP kind of campaign, which I think is fantastic. Um, What would it look like, not just for the minister or the lay worker to ring up and say to the MP, can I come in and talk for 15 minutes, but to think about the church as being in relationship with that MP, not just its representative, but the whole church. So what would it look like after you or as you are figuring out your mission? This is what we're for in this community, to make an appointment with your MP and to take five or six people into the MP's office and let the MP expound upon her or his or their kind of vision for the neighborhood, their locality, their, their constituency, but then also to share, this is our hope. And to begin to develop that relationship. Now, this... This can happen. uh, This happens most beautifully when it's done over time with a commitment to consistency. So you start by having a a meeting uh, in the office, but then you keep going back and you come back with things that you've said to the MP that you'll be responsible for. So you come back to respond to the MP to let them know how you've been faithful on your part. But you also come back to hold the MP accountable to what he or she said that they would do. And this happens over and over and over again so that when key votes come up in Parliament or key, key votes come up on in, in, in councils, that, that that MP knows what you think, knows who you are for, for starts, which is key for your MP to know who you are, not just for you to know who they are, but for them to know who you are, knows what you stand for um, and has you in mind when they are considering their vote. So... Um, It's common for us to think about writing our MP when we want them to vote a certain way, which is fabulous, but what would it look like over time to have such a a public committed relationship with your MP that they were calling you as the church to find out what you believed about XYZ before they voted? So it wasn't just the MP has the power and it flows to you if you're lucky. It's the church has the power because it lives in that neighborhood with all those different people and says no this is what our vision is so there's a there's a mutual accountability there let me tell you just one quick story about a church in Chicago that I pastored it's a little bit of a different political system but the same principles hold we were working on these Um, community hubs for restorative justice. So instead of sending kids to prison because they had done minor infractions, we convinced uh, a pilot project in our county to let these kids who had done minor infractions to come and sit in a community hub and to face the person that they had harmed and to build a way of responding that wasn't punitive or um, wasn't about punishing, but was about building up uh, and, and hopefully changing the offender, and but also doing reconciliation with the person they had offended against. It was beautiful. And so we'd done this work with our community organization. And we had all these these little little communities and we were at this point of, it had worked. It had worked in these little test cases, these pilot projects. And so we'd gone to the city council and we said, we need, I think it was like two million bucks, two million dollars, which is not that much money when it comes to county budgets, but it's just still a significant chunk of change. And we had been meeting with, the chair of the committee, on and off for years, and he was supportive of it in his office when we went to meet with him. But um, when it came time for the vote, he was wavering. About the vote was about whether they release this two million, two million dollars for this for the expansion of this program. He was he was sort of he was wavering on this publicly. He wouldn't he wouldn't signal how he would vote, and so he rang his office. I rang his office as the minister. He wouldn't pick pick up the phone up. I, I rang the office the next day. He wouldn't pick the phone up. Until uh, one of our uh, lay folks, a woman called Violet, thought, this. well, this is enough. We have a relationship with this guy. John Fritchie is his name. We have a relationship with him. He's made commitments to us in his office about what he stands for. And so she took to Twitter and she said, uh, Representative Sh- she said, Mr. Fritchie, you have made these commitments to us. We are a growing church of young people in this city. And we demand, we demand that you hold true to what you said you were going to do. Well, it really, really angered him. Because we had called him out politically and publicly, but the next day he voted the right way in committee, and then came back to us like we were old friends, right? So this is this is an example of a church that that probably would not have happened if we hadn't already had a relationship with him, but because. He knew that we were people of, of spiritual power in the community and political power. He changed, perhaps, changed the way he was going to vote because we held him accountable. You no, know, there'd be times when he'd come back to us and hold us accountable, and that's that's how it works in a in a political system where there's freedom. But um, these are these are two of the things I think that happen when we lean into relationships. Very different from the church sitting up in its in its in its church building and um preaching great sermons about justice. This is actually practicing it. And it turns out it's a lot of fun. It turns out it grows the church. And uh, most importantly, uh, it changes the community for health, for justice, and for the common good.
0: So with that, we're now going to sign off. Thank you so much for joining us today and we hope you enjoyed. If you ever have any comments or suggestions of things you'd like us to talk about or possible people who you'd like to hear us interview, please let us know and we'd love to hear any feedback. You can contact us through the Joint Public Issues Team website.